0: Hi, everyone. You're listening to The Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview investors to find out how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Enjoy the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to The Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview multifamily real estate investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Before we hop into today's show, I want to remind you of today's sponsor. This show is brought to you by PassiveInvesting.com. PassiveInvesting.com is a private equity real estate investment firm focused on institutional quality, multifamily, and self-storage assets in the hottest markets in the United States. PassiveInvesting.com partners with their investors to provide opportunities to build wealth together by delivering consistent monthly cash flow, capital appreciation, and strong tax benefits. They currently have 1,700 plus passive investors with a 65% repeat investor rate. If you're interested in learning more, head over to PassiveInvesting.com or click the link in the show notes. You can get more information on investment opportunities, educational webinars, or insightful articles. Reach out and see how they can help you build wealth through real estate. And Enjoy the show. Now for today's guest, we have Nick Earls and Eric DiNicola. They are real estate investors focusing on multifamily and also developers. They purchase and syndicate large multifamily properties in the Southeast and develop luxury multifamily condominiums in the Boston market. They also develop affordable housing and have experience with land entitlement. They've developed over $56 million worth of real estate with an additional $40 million of upcoming projects which most of were and are luxury condominiums based in Boston, Massachusetts. Please give a warm welcome to Nick and Eric. Hey,
1: thanks for, thanks for having us on.
0: Us. Yeah, I, I will have to say, you know, both of you, I've, I've heard both of you on podcasts before. You both have very nice, deep radio voices. Uh, so, <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, good of, course, you. Good of, course. Good enough. of course. It's a pleasure to have you guys on. Now, uh, aside from just that little intro, uh, I'd love... To have you guys give the listeners a little bit more about your background and also your focus.
1: Yeah. So, Eric and I have been friends for almost 20 years now, met each other when we were in high school. The two of us kind of always had a bit of a rebellious streak or, you know, <laughs> independent streak. <laughs> so, we had this idea, you know, we're not going to work for someone else's company, but we were kids. We didn't really know how we'd do it. Um, I got my real estate license out of college, we had went to different colleges and i was selling smaller apartment buildings and i I said to eric i think this is the way you know this is the way we could kind of break free from the cycle and and start our own thing so we wanted to buy a rental property but we didn't have any money we were young you know in our early 20s at the time didn't know anything about raising capital or anything at that point so we were saving up money for a couple years and in that time period our goal kind of shifted because we saw an opportunity in condominium development. So Boston and there's a bunch of markets where condo development's good, but the situation in Boston is a lot of high-paying life science industry workers have been moving into the city. We exceeded our 2030 population projection a few years ago. So we you know, we've been really ahead of the projections there. And a lot of these people as i said they're high paying you know you've got moderna one of the vaccine producers in in cambridge you got a lot of biotech firms here a lot of them want luxury rentals but also a lot of them want home ownership units condominiums that they can own and live in the city and you know have access to urban amenities and a lot of their employers are located within the city so this has led to you know a huge spike and prices. So we saw an opportunity there in condominiums and in kind of emerging neighborhoods of Boston where some of these people are getting good deals. And in the years since then, you know, the prices have almost doubled or tripled in some of these neighborhoods. But our first project was a, um, a smaller job. It was a two family that we added a third unit to. And we've been doing it ever since. Eric could kind of go into his background.
0: But that's kind of the beginning of our company. We're gonna dive into that first development. But you know, before Eric goes, actually after Eric goes, it goes into his introduction.
2: Oh, thank you, Taylor. Yeah, I mean, as Nick said, you know, we've been friends for almost twenty years at this point. You know, I had kind of an engineering and math background. Went to college and. You know, the first, uh, semester is in an engineering class and the, uh, and the uh, professor said, okay, who, who do you guys think, you know, makes the most money, um, at an engineering firm? And he's going over and, and, and anyway, the, the result was he basically told us, You're not going to make the most money if you're just an engineer. And and I was like, Oh, okay. Well, you know what? Maybe that kind of changes what I'm, what I'm thinking. Because at that point, I'm thinking, okay, got, you know, college debt, got to figure out some way to set up for the future. This is what I know how to do. But I kind of just went into engineering because that's what I was good at. And I thought that that was kind of the route. So anyway, that got me thinking I had already known, you know, as Nick said, since high school, that we kind of wanted to do something on our own. Um, even though we weren't, you know, living in the same state anymore at that point, uh, we were still always talking and connecting. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to switch into finance. I could still use kind of the math background that I had in a, in a different way. So I did that, graduated, got into public equity, then worked for a firm that dealt with private equity data. So I, I was very kind of entrenched in the different equity markets and then began saving with Nick to come back here. And I, I moved back from New York City to Boston timing was very fortuitous for us. And that kind of led us to um, that first deal that we're talking about. The two family that we ended up turning into three condos, and we could get into this and selling them as three individual units. And that, that kind of springboarded us.
0: Yeah. Let's let's go into it. So how did you guys find this particular deal then? Uh, we'll, we'll just start there.
1: Yeah. So we had seen um, East Boston was a particular neighborhood. We saw that there was a lot of planned upcoming development in this neighborhood. So we were actually just looking on MLS okay. because you know, we saw that there was going to be a lot, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars invested by larger developers and that kind of gave us a good idea prices were already starting to rise and they've risen, continued to rise since. So we were looking just on the open market MLS at the time. It's gotten a lot more competitive now, it'd be a lot harder to find a deal on MLS. But at the time, people kind of had a, a perception of that neighborhood as, oh yeah, no one's gonna buy there, the, the airport's there, and there's planes flying over. That's kind of the reputation it had for decades. So you could get some good deals on the open market at that time. Um, nowadays, we don't get too many deals from MLS. A lot of it's just direct from brokers, but different different time period, it was an emerging market so, you know, if you can identify an emerging market, you might be able to get deals on MLS.
0: And, and where did you learn to identify
1: the emerging markets? That was just kind of luck, <laughs> maybe. Me I mean, <laughs> just the idea of that we saw, you know, is just kind of the idea of, okay, these big developers are doing really large developments in this neighborhood. And then a lot of people have this idea, oh, yeah, the airplane's flying over. The, kind of the, the contrast of the two just just made us think. All right, this is kind of worth looking at because we could get deals there. But we knew that the big players were already thinking this is a place to invest in, which was kind of all the proof we needed, you know. And th- there was obviously some risks there, but it worked out for us.
0: Ned, did you guys go into it thinking that you're going to be adding a third unit, and that was just the strategy y'all wanted to implement, and that was the your criteria for looking at different properties or it was it just at that time it made the most sense
2: that was you know it it kind of a combination of the two that specific one once we identified it that was the plan right away you know we knew this is what we're going to do it's going to be three units we have to expand the building footprint a bit add an addition completely gut the existing building it was in a three family zone so we were allowed by right to do three units as long as we met all the kind of dimensional setback requirements height you know kind of floor area ratio is a big thing in Boston. It's kind of just like the massing, the city's metric for kind of massing how it'll look on that particular property. But I mean, you know, if we had found something where it was an opportunity to do two units and we could make money or four or five, you know, we we would have then we didn't say okay it has to be a three unit. But that was where we saw the opportunity. And what ended up happening, kind of Nick alluded to this was Okay, we figured it out. We said, okay, this is how far back we can go from the street. This is how high we can go. All these sort of things. This is what these condos sell out for. We got everything kind of wrapped up and you know quantified. Um, then we submitted the plans because it wasn't. We weren't trying to get any variances or zoning relief. We were building something fully within the code, um, which is harder now. You're not going to find that many deals. We can make a lot of money in Boston doing that. It's it's definitely tougher than six years ago, six seven years ago. So we we did that. And we had a little setback at the beginning where we, you know, it was all our money we saved. It was in plans examiner, rejected the plans and said, actually, you guys, you know, uh, you don't meet this o- open space requirement. Just another one of the items in the list. You know, you weren't set back far enough here. So we kind of had to argue with him. Nick was going back and forth and we proved that, yeah, this we did. And he actually relented and, and gave us the building permit, which isn't always the case in Boston. Mm. Nice. But most of our projects at this point are zoning relief projects anyway. So it'd be rare to find that. But when you do, you know you just build it perfectly within the code. So we did there. It was three units. As the project went on, the market continued to rise. So really, at the end, uh, we projected a certain amount. Uh, we listed them for that amount, and we ended up getting more on all three units than we projected. So it was a really good springboard for us and a small enough project that got our feet wet in development and kind of gave us the confidence that, okay, look, you know, we knew we could do this, but now it's been done. Now, really, let's, let's roll this into two more
0: and kind of scale from there. Got it. And so what what were some of the biggest learning lessons that you guys learned from, from this whole process? Cause it sounds like there was a lot of obstacles with the city uh, and zoning. And, you know, I'd love to just hear those, those stories and those obstacles.
1: Yeah, there's a, We'd be talking all day about obstacles <laughs> for the <laughs> city officials and all that. But um, that's been uh, kind of the story of the past few years is you know navigating the political environment because we've become very involved with land entitlement. And because the market is so restrictive, it is a very outdated zoning code. And pretty much most major projects, you're going to get neighborhood support civic group support, and then zoning board support, and support from local politicians. You're going to need all that in order to um, get it built. So we've been involved with that, which is, you know, on paper, it could be very risky. We've had a lot of success with getting projects entitled, mostly those smaller, mid-sized buildings, anywhere from like 7 to 10 units. They're called urban infill projects, where we'll look at, you know, there's there's a kind of a parcel of land in say a zone where you could build three units but it's twice the size of the other parcels and then we'll go there and we'll um, propose okay we're gonna do six seven eight units instead of three going through that process has been it's taught us you know a lot of things uh, develop thick skin because you got to deal with neighbors who are a lot of times the people will show up at these meetings or the people who are Against you, the normal, you know, people who support it or don't care, they'll just throw the notice in the trash. They're not going to go there at seven thirty on a Wednesday or whatever. So you, it's an uphill battle from the start. So you know, going into this, we had a good success at the beginning, and we've been able to continue successes, but it's been a lot harder than that first project. So we, we were lucky that you know, we had that good kind of springboard, as Eric said, you know, we've had to develop a team of experts, architects, attorneys, brokers, in order to to keep making, you know, returns for ourselves and now our investors. And the challenge of it has, has led us to evolve, really, but it, it
0: wasn't always easy along the way, of course. And so, You know, it it gets me to think. I mean, because so I'm based in California and San Francisco, and then also San Jose. It seems to be uh, very dense and heavily populated, similar to Boston. Now, are these condo conversions? I mean, it seems like that's just going to be the strategy that most of these other investors are going to be taking on for these investors in these particular areas, right? And so, do you think? I'd love to at least just like know your thoughts because I'm not just too familiar with the topic. But, you know, why is it that these condo conversions work out so much more than just like a typical value add, than a typical value add that normal investors, I guess, and and other landlord friendly states Uh, utilize?
2: Yeah, that's, it's, we're definitely not, as, as you know, you know, we're not in a landlord friendly state in Massachusetts. (laughs) So I, I think we have a couple of theories on this as to why this is a strong sort of strategy within Boston. And that's not to say we, we have some rental properties on the side as well that we um, want to continue to build in terms of that's part of the portfolio. But the condo market in Boston is very, profitable for developers and has been for five, six, seven years now because of a lot of the things Nick mentioned at the beginning, that the life sciences industry that drives a lot of the employment in that area is higher paying jobs. A lot of these people want to live in the city or close to, you know, where they work or close to the action, um, but they don't want to rent. Um, they still want to be homeowners, but at the same time you know they don 't want because you know, you know you can find single family homes in the city, but they don 't necessarily want to have to deal with all the stuff that comes with uh being a owner of a single family so I think a lot of those factors drive owners to be interested in in condos and we just notice kind of from you know the real estate side of things rents are very high in Boston for sure. But the condo prices on a per square foot basis are also very high. So I'd imagine if you look at kind of the ratio of rents to condo prices, it's a wider gap than in some other major cities. And there's just a lot of interest for people like that that I'm going into. So it's not to say you know there couldn't be big apartment building developments where it's you know held on to as a long term investment and it's just renters in there because we still look at those too. A lot of developers do do that, but this is kind of a niche thing that has worked. And I don't know for how long. We're still definitely in in a a good sort of golden age of it, if you will. But it is smart to diversify and look at other types of real estate investments in Boston and outside, which is what we're doing. So we have the luxury condo development, which is working. We've kind of got a um, good expertise in it at this point. We understand the game. We kind of know going in, okay, look, we, we need to sell them for this much or it's not going to work and then we move on but we're also you know always looking at deals where we could build an apartment building that we could hold on to and rent other sort of long term investments office conversions where we convert an office to an apartment building and and that would have no condos that would just be a long term asset but we use some of that condo development construction experience to to make that happen um, and then also, like I mentioned at the beginning of this rant I'm on here, the uh, side sort of rental properties we have in, in and around Boston. So that way, the way we look at it is we're kind of dipping our feet in where as many opportunities as we can that still fit within this kind of scope of expertise we have, which all kind of stemmed from this condo development. I hope I kind of answered your question that it's it's those people who want to buy those units, that demographic. There's still a lot of them in, in a large enough group
0: that they're very in demand and people are willing to pay a lot for, for units like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, I, I'd also love to know a little bit more about, you know, because because I heard on another podcast that you guys were on where you were looking at office buildings and then turn, turning those into condos. I mean, there's not really a uh, an unknown fact that office buildings definitely took a hit, especially during the pandemic. And, you know, so I'd love to know at least like some of the vetting process there when you look at an office building and of where you see the opportunity and... <laughs> what that process is like do you have to go through a bunch of zoning regulations as well just to get through get get that done? Yeah, you, you definitely would
1: in most cases. Now you could find an office building where it was zoned for residential, but typically you're going to be looking at an office building in a zone for offices or you know mixed use with retail commercial zone basically. But for us, yeah, you want to find an underutilized office building. You don't want something that's 75% plus occupied. You want something, you know, 60, 50, 40% or less occupied, where maybe COVID hit them hard, maybe improper zoning. A lot of the deals we're looking at is they're in these kind of major corridors where residential with first floor retail makes the most sense but you're operating off a zoning code from 1950 or whatever, you know, and rehauling zoning is a big political process. So a lot of these municipalities don't want to do that, but they'll bypass it by if you go to them, they'll give you a special permit. Now with the condo deals, a lot of time it's an uphill battle because you're dealing with neighbors and all that. But in a lot of these other towns, you know, satellite cities, of boston or any major metro area you'll find more affordable places where they're encouraging development you know they want to bring in the people you know a lot of these towns especially in massachusetts they're kind of on an upswing after decades of being on a downswing you know there were major manufacturing hubs in the 1800s and then in the 1900s, the early 1900s, they just slowly started to decline. They really bottomed out in like the eighties. And then since then, the crime rate is, you know, halved population growth is income growth. All those things are happening, you know, path of progress sort of check marks, but you're still seeing underutilization. You know, there's offices that aren't fully filled up. Maybe they'd be better utilized to be an apartment building. But there hasn't been that much much investment yet. You're still getting in early, like we did when we invested in East Boston. So that those are kind of the things we look for. We want the city to be friendly. You know, we don't want it to be an uphill battle. And we want to see kind of a more affordable alternative. You know, we like a place where you're maybe an hour, 45 minutes, 30 minutes away from a high paying job center like Boston, but the rent is Half the price, you know, because there's going to be a lot of interest in those cities in the next 10, 15 years. We think, you know, eventually rents can't keep growing at the rate they've been growing in these really luxury areas. You know, people are already making 100, 150 grand, might not be able to afford, you know, to be renting in these luxury developments that are going up. They might want to live. 30 minutes out. So rent's going to start growing in these satellite cities. That's one of our thesis. And uh, we
0: like to pursue those sort of projects. And would these projects also be considered transit-oriented multifamily? Okay. I, I saw that on, on your Instagram. And so I, I figured I'm
1: putting two and two together. That we really like it to be close to, um, we call them T. T here in Massachusetts the uh, transportation authority but we like it to be close to the commuter rail or subway stop most of our projects
0: are are within walking distance yep got it got it got it now you know if if you're going and finding these office buildings you know maybe like 50, 50% vacant 60% vacant what type of debt do you guys put on these buildings i mean i can't imagine Fannie and freddie to be <laughs> to be lending out loans, for especially that occupancy rate. But yeah, what kind of what kind of debt?
2: Yeah, you're brought? right. That's that's it. They had you know they want their sort of ninety, you know ninety percent uh, occupancy. So what we'll do is it, it's always deal dependent. Um, mm-hmm. But the uh, simplest way is you know we'll go to a bank. We'll say hey look, we want to buy this building. This, this is how much it's being sold for. And then this is how much, you know, construction we need the cost of our construction to. Get to this final building, which will be an upgraded version with apartment units in it, and we'll show them what the n o i would be on that final building. It's kind of based on cap rates in the area, show them what the value of that building would be then when you have those two variables. so we can calculate all that ahead of time you know to it's all projections, of course, but we can get numbers mm-hmm. from our contractor and say, Look, you know it's fifty thousand square foot building we're going to keep the retail on the first floor." But we're going to renovate everything else. Forty thousand square feet are going to be renovated. They can give us an estimate on a per square foot basis, and we can say we can go to the bank, say, "All right, you know, this is a million dollars to buy this thing. Um, we could just buy it right now and put twenty five percent down, two hundred fifty thousand, and then we'd own this building. But it's only occupied at you know fifty percent, so that might." The bank might say, well, no, you, we're not even going to give you a loan on that because it doesn't even meet our debt requirements based on the income it's making. But when you kind of present it to them as a whole project, they'll look at it a bit differently. Um, they might say, okay, we'll fund that as an interest only kind of bridge loan on the acquisition. And then we'll give you you know, 100% of the uh, construction costs and you draw as you go. That's kind of one way to do it. So the simple answer to your question is we still might be able to just put 25% down. And then finance the rest with the same bank both the acquisition and the construction or uh, the bank might say okay look it's a million to buy you're claiming you're going to cost you five million in construction so you're looking at a total six million dollar development project you need to put 25 percent down of that amount and then you know then we're you know bringing in more investors because at that same example you're talking maybe 1.5 million in equity versus the 250 on the first one. So those are kind of two routes that a conventional traditional lender might look at it. And these are, you know, t- ideally we go with the local bank because we'll get much closer to say four five, eight, five percent interest. Uh, we've dealt with private lenders on some of these projects too, because they are sometimes a little out there and you got to kind of create something out of nothing. And then we're paying higher interest, but it's an easier way to lock the job down. So those, I guess, are kind of three ways where you have the two with the conventional um, 25% on the acquisition and 100% of the construction covered or 25% on the total cost, or kind of go with the, the third one, like I said, the private lender, where maybe they'll offer you either of those two options, but at a much higher interest rate, but with less
0: scrutiny. Got it. And you know, when going into these deals, what are some of the ways you guys are conservatively underwriting for you know, your investors? What metrics do you look at? Um, how, how do you guys hedge against name risk?
1: Depends on the type of project. So for the condo projects, we usually like to look at things on the price per square foot sellout. So on the sale price, we type, we like to look at what if, you know, the market dropped, you know, 10, 15, 20 bucks a square foot? How would we, you know, how would this project survive? And then when you're looking at a rental project, we tr- we do a lot of different types of stress tests, but I think the main one would be we we expand cap rates. We assume an expansion, even though there's been a lot of compression going on for years now. We still assume an expansion of you know one basis point per year. So over ten years, um, you'd be going up one cap point percentage point. So that's these are some of the ways you know we look at. We don't ever really underwrite for appreciation. You know, we might have that in our head that by year two or three, we're getting more in rent or in price per square foot. But we always look at how the market is today and we don't assume it's going to go up, even though it typically does.
0: Yeah, no, I love it, and I mean, <laughs> especially, you know, if it works and you stress test it, even without the as much appreciation, and it does, it's just a better story for your investors. You under promise and then over over deliver. Now, Sorry. you know, this may be a, a dumb question, but you know, in terms of like the exit and when y'all are selling off, let's say for for these condo developments, how does the how, did, how does the exit strategy work? so like if, if I were to be a passive investor uh, in your deal like is it just based on when each of them sell and then we get a portion when that capital event happens?
2: That's a good question we, we get asked that a lot because you know a lot of people aren't used to Condo development and for sale multiple, you know, sales within a one property at the end. I right. you know, typically used to like okay, refinance, hold on, or just sell the entire asset to another investor. So we kind of do it as a balloon payment to our investors. Typically, the units will all sell within a close enough time frame that we can pretty much just make one payment to the investors. But as we get bigger, like we have a 32-unit condo development we're working on right now. So those, even though our our goal and hope is, hey, we pre-sell all of them by the end of construction, that's a really lofty, ambitious goal. In reality, you're probably not going to pre-sell all of them. So what will happen is the order of events will kind of be, okay, they invest. We tell them, look, it's probably going to be about, you know, could be... Two years or so might be close to three by the time you get your money back, but you're going to get a preferred rate of return on the entire investment. So not necessarily annualized, but we'll give you, you know, X percent on your money at the end. Maybe it's, you know, 40, 50%. So if we finish it faster, you're getting a great annualized return. If we finish it slower, you're still getting that preferred rate and you can look at it kind of however you want. So the way we would do it is, all right. So we, we start the project. We have the investor capital, our own capital. We put it all in. We try to sell units as we go, but we can't necessarily collect, you know, money from those buyers. We can get them under agreement. Then it's certificate of occupancy, whatever we have under agreement. All those will sell. Then we'll pay off the loan, pay off, you know, everything up to the point of, you know, breaking even. Then we'll pay our investors first, their principal back and then this preferred rate of return. And that'll be as units sell. If they're all sold at that point, get one payment. But otherwise, it'll be continuous prorated as they sell until they hit their preferred rate of return. And then if there's anything left, it'll go to us at that point. So with these condo deals, just because of the unique nature, our investors all get their principal back and their preferred rate of return before we touch anything.
0: Wow. <laughs> and and in it just it, rough numbers then. Like what do those returns typically look like that you guys target?
2: Yeah, I'd say well, right now, most of our condo projects, say it's like two years, two to three years horizon. We try to give close to 50% total on their money. Um and, and we've been able wow. to hit that for those kind of longer projects. And so you're you're annualizing, you know, 20,
0: 20 plus percent in some of the good, good scenarios, you know. Yeah. Now, you know, with with me being pretty new to this and I may be missing a pretty common question that you guys get all the time when when hearing about investing in it passively in these condo developments, but what were what are some other, you know, common questions and also answers to those questions that you guys hear all the time?
1: I think, you know, a lot of people are just used to traditional, you know, you're buying an existing property. Maybe you're fixing it up a little bit, raising mm-hmm. the rents. You know, kind of a vanilla value add deal. <laughs> um,
0: Y'all are going condo, to make chocolate chip.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we're out <laughs> there. We're, we're 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 definitely a remix on the on the vanilla. So most people aren't used to it. You know, as you mm-hmm. said. Um, so we, we kind of have to educate our investors from the ground up. But the thing that gets people interested is that it's a higher return. And I would say that everyone everyone has their own unique questions. A lot of it relates to construction, you know, what, what happens if construction takes longer. And as Eric said, we kind of have a unique approach where we give a very high total preferred return total on the, the project. So it's kind of out there in the open. You're gonna make this much money unless the project completely fails, and they'll be able to see that the project is You know, if we make half the amount of profit, we're typically able to pay our investors um, based on the amount that we raise. So they know from the beginning. Okay, I'm going to make this much money. The big factor is timing. So a lot of the questions go towards vetting the contractor. Are all the permits in place? What you know? How how is that working? So from the beginning, we have in our investment packages, we have a background on our contractors. Links to their past work. We've even had investors speak with our contractors, so that's a big one. Whoa. Yes, because you want to yeah. have you know alignment between, especially if it's a big investor. I don't know if we do that for you know a typical like fifty thousand, hundred thousand person, <laughs> but <laughs> a larger investor, you know they they're able to you know move their weight around a little bit more or whatever. But yeah, we it's it's more about a credibility of the construction process? Because obviously, it's a little more complicated than a normal deal.
0: So those are, those would be your typical questions. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, thank you for sharing. And then now, what's next steps? What's, what's the, the major focus then for, for 2022?
2: So we're really um, expanding this office conversion arm of our business. We're very big into, you know, we're opportunistic guys as a company. We have our, our third partner who's, who came out a few years ago, Kyle. Yep. Yeah, sure. And Kyle. we've known Kyle just as long and he's great. He's the head of our investor relations. So he's also big into deal flow for us. So. We're constantly finding and setting up new systems to find new deals, but kind of the point I'm making, the opportunistic thing. We're going to keep doing the condos. We have that down, nailed down pretty well. We have sort of a system for that. We're bringing in these office conversions um, that we've been working on for a little while now. And the goal is have three of those per year right now that we get mm-hmm. under contract and start and then continue to. Acquire rental properties as well. Kind of, I I say in the background, but obviously that's a big thing. Each, each deal is never like a minor thing. Um, but to us, those first two are kind of the main parts of our business. And that third one is just continued sort of security behind the scenes. We know, look, we continue to build up these assets. A, you know, we just, we have more passive income coming in. And we can sort of fund the company and do a lot of these things that development, which is very cash intensive at the beginning of each project can be supported by. But B, it allows us to then get bigger development projects where we have, you know, a bigger balance sheet. We slowly acquire these and say, okay, look, you know, now we have 20 units, 30 units. And they say, okay, yeah, you know what? You guys, we can give you a loan this size on this next project. You know, you've kind of met the requirements. So really the. If I had to say one word, continue to, to scale up one phrase, but it's, it's through those specific goals, three office conversions a year going forward, keeping the development of the condo properties
0: and then acquiring rental assets as well. I love it. Sounds like you guys are going to have a a big twenty twenty two, and then a little bit of a side note aside from real estates. Before we wrap it up, I'd love to know the story of the Lucky Puppy Society. You know, did, it was the the nonprofit, right? Is is did I did I say that correctly? Yeah, just like the start of that. Do you guys just love puppies and just grew up with with puppies? I mean, it's hard to say who doesn't love puppies, but I just was curious about the story. Yeah, Eric and I are
1: both been dog owners since we we're kids. Um, yeah. I always grew up with big, you know, gold retriever and German oh, nice. shepherd, and uh, yeah, so we definitely a dog background. And this is just kind of a specific cause that there doesn't really seem to be much support for. Is you know what what happens when your dog needs a surgery and you're not you know that's you can't your family can't afford that which i think is is very common you know for a lot of families it's a it's a horrible decision you'd have to make between finances or saving your pet so we thought maybe we could make a difference on by starting this nonprofit but still new so we're trying to figure out ways we can raise money you know we're open to donations but right now our main source of income is we sell t-shirts and we also donate some of our profits from our condominium projects into the nonprofit. And the goal is people can go to the website. If they know a family or their own dog that's in need, that fits this bill, they can kind of sign, sign up, fill out a form, and we'll see that and we'll get in touch with
0: them um, within like 24, 48 hours. Nice. I love that. You know, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Nick and Eric. And if people want to get a hold of you, how can they get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, our website, I would say, is the is the best place. We got a ton of educational resources on there, bunch of articles, investor guides, ebooks we've written. I I wrote an ebook about the development strategy, an ebook about passively investing into companies like ours. So that's winterspringcapital.com. You can also sign up for our Investor Club if you're interested, and you'll be able to see our deals as they come out. We're also active on Instagram at Winterspring Capital. Eric and I are also on LinkedIn, Nick Earls and Eric DiNicola.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It was a pleasure having you on to the show. And then listeners, please stay tuned for a few days because now we're going to be going into the action items episode for the next episode. So thank you everyone for listening and have a great rest of your day. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you got any value out of the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you leave a rating and review on iTunes to help others receive that same value. If you're looking to learn more on how to passively invest in apartment buildings or self storage assets click on my link in the show notes to learn more thanks and i'll see you next time